Welcome to this latest episode of Freshfields Managing Risk in Asia podcast series. In this series, we bring together experts across a range of subject areas to share forward-looking insights on key risk areas for businesses in Asia. My name is Nanette Dodu, and I'm a partner and the co-head of the Freshfields Antitrust Practice in China. This episode is the first in our two-part series covering managing risks in life science investments in Asia and the risks Asian corporates should keep in mind when investing outside the Asia-Pacific region. Today, we'll look specifically at key investment trends and emerging transactional risks associated with different deal structures. I'm delighted to be joined by four of my colleagues from across the Freshfields Global Life Sciences Practice. Vinita Kilasanath is a partner in our Silicon Valley office, specializing in intellectual property and data-driven transactions in life sciences and technology. Hi, everyone. Delighted to be here. Adam Golden, who's a partner based in our New York office, he leads our life sciences transactions team in the U.S. and focuses on M&A and licensing deals. Hi, Ninette and everybody. Happy to be here. Maya, who's counsel based in our Beijing office. Her practice focuses on advising life sciences clients on cross-border M&A transactions and China-related regulatory issues. Hi, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Jenny Lee, a senior associate in our antitrust practice, who is based in London and routinely advises our life sciences clients on the merger control and foreign direct investment aspects of their global deals. Hello, everyone. To set the scene, Maya, Adam and Vinita, as transaction lawyers, what trends are you seeing in life sciences investment in Asian markets and from Asian investors overseas? Thanks, Nana. The first and the most obvious trends we've seen in the past few years is a surge of global pharma companies divesting their non-core assets or business globally and regionally to focus on fewer key therapeutical areas. In those deals, we've seen Asian investors have been active and competitive bidders. And also, several key global players have launched their strategic reviews in 2021. We can expect to see more carve-outs, demergers, and spin-offs, and with many likely to be the subject of competitive auctions in the future. The second trend we I'd like to share is there have been more licensing out and collaboration transactions driven by Asian biotech players. Compared with traditionally the licensee's role, we are starting to see more Asian players as licensors in the pharma licensing deals recently. And pharma multinational companies have started to source new pipeline products in Asian markets. For example, in past years, a Shanghai-based biotech company, IMAP, it licensed to AbbVie its immuno-oncology drug at 1.9 billion US dollars. And another Chinese biotech company licensed to Eli Lili, the ex-China rights to its PD-1 inhibitor products with the deal size over 1 billion US dollars. And this, I think this is largely uh, driven by three factors. The first is there has been increased R&D capacities and more R&D talents in the region. And secondly, the local governments in Asia 
have adopted more policies encouraging innovation in biotech areas. And lastly, there are more financing channels available for biotech companies, especially the startups in the region. So all those three factors have led to a sustainable and healthy ecosystem in the Asian biotech sector. Vinita, I'd like to turn to you next and pick up on some of the points that um, Maya was making, but to focus specifically on medtech, which is a particular area of focus for you. What sort of trends are you observing in this space? Yeah, thanks, Ned. I'd love to pick up on one of Maya's threads around the real role of government around various regions within Asia. We've seen a lot of really favorable policy environments arise. Many view Singapore as really a leader in this area with its diagnostic development hub. It's essentially a national platform for medtech development, and that's not the only one. You know, there are many countries in Asia that are really focusing on providing emerging companies with real high-profile visibility with healthcare investors, other stakeholders in the system. You know, real decision makers in the space. I think it's also been really wonderful to see. The focus on digital health policy at a national level, we're seeing in Asia a real acceleration in the adoption of comprehensive EHRs, electronic health records, as well as some really interesting private-public partnerships that I think will do a lot to increase access to care、um, in, in a really efficient way. I think underpinning that. Is also a parallel convergence of regulatory standards because you really need all of these different electronic systems to talk to each other in a seamless way, and so you need to have some fundamental regulatory standards, you know, certainly within Asia, but also to international norms. And this is really a, a global phenomenon in which we're seeing a lot of leadership from from the Asian continent. Yeah, to add on Vanessa's point, given the government's involvement or support in the sector, it really helped to build on the ecosystem in this area. Thanks for that. This trend has been also reflected in the continued strong interest from financial sponsors. In the last year, we've seen the investment in the life sciences sector by PE investors in Asia. Accounted for approximately forty-seven percent of the total deal volume in the region, according to a, a PwC survey report. Adam, I'd like to bring you into this conversation. What sort of investment trends are you seeing in this sector in the U.S.? Thanks, Nanette. Well, it's really been an interesting sector to watch for investment. Both by Asian companies in the U.S. and investment in, in Asian and particularly China companies in China, we've seen real growth in the biotech sector, particularly in China, where there's been an influx of venture capital investment over the last few years. For example, biotech investments in China in 2021 were roughly 50% higher than 2020, and we saw that continue in early 2022. That, together with more flexible listing rules by local stock exchanges, has made very accessible access to capital for this growing sector. I think it's also indicative of the market's view that the quality of biotech companies in the region has improved significantly, and are, are attracting that sort of investment. 
This is also consistent with the trend Maya noted of increased out-licensing by China-based companies. Another example of this is Novartis's licensing of rights to Beijing's PD-1 asset in early 2021, another very large multi-billion dollar transaction which included a $650 million payment up front. On the flip side, we're seeing growing Asian and again, particularly Chinese investment in U.S. biotech companies. This is an important source of financing, especially now with the financing market so difficult in the U.S. and Europe. There's virtually no public financing available, particularly for private companies wanting to go public via an IPO. Traditional VC investors have been become much more selective, and the SPAC market has largely dried up as well. These investors, they've become very experienced in U.S.-style dealmaking, and in many cases have established local outposts in the U.S. for this purpose. So with both of these developments, we're seeing a lot more investment cross-border, both Asia into the U.S. and U.S. into Asia, again, with China really leading the way on these sorts of investments. Thanks for that, Adam. I'd like to shift focus to and discuss some of the emerging risks and challenges that we're seeing in the life sciences space. As Antitrust Council, what we are seeing is innovation-driven sectors, including the life sciences sector, being subject to increased antitrust scrutiny and foreign investment reviews. Jenny, bringing you into this conversation, how are you seeing the increased regulatory scrutiny impact life sciences deals? Thanks, Lynette. You're absolutely right. We are seeing increased scrutiny in this sector. Life sciences is high on the radar of antitrust authorities worldwide. I think there's a combination of factors and trends that's driving this increased regulatory scrutiny. First, the pandemic revealed weaknesses in national supply chains. And when you combine that with a general geopolitical shift towards protectionism, that elevates the focus on life sciences deals across the board. And governments have responded to this perceived threat in a number of ways, including by expanding the scope of their foreign investment regimes and by lowering the bar for merger control review. What we're seeing is increased national protection of critical healthcare and technology assets, including IP, for example. And that impacts both outbound and inbound investment into the sector in Asia and worldwide. So as a result, what we're seeing is a wider range of filing requirements and deal documents that are dealing with this regulatory unpredictability, both at the time of signing and throughout the time period the agreement is in place. I would say at the outset that these days there's really no such thing as a regional deal. So even deals which appear to be primarily or even exclusively related to the Asian markets could well require filings in Europe, in the UK and or in the US. The range of deal structures that you've already mentioned, so demergers, licensing deals, they can all be caught by these regulatory regimes, both merger control and foreign direct investment review. And critically, it's important to understand that those filings can arise at different stages of a transaction life cycle. To give you an example, a license deal with option rights attached to it, that could trigger, say, a USHSR filing at the time of signing, depending on the commercial terms and the value of the deal. But it could also trigger further filings at a later stage, depending on when and how the option rights are exercised. Let me give you two real-world examples of this. So first of all, we recently saw the General Court's judgment in the Illumina Grill saga. 
This involved a deal over which the European Commission had claimed jurisdiction, even though it did not meet European turnover thresholds, but it also didn't meet any turnover thresholds in any member states. Nevertheless, the Commission, under its new policy, asserted jurisdiction, and this has now been firmly endorsed by the General Court. And in the Commission's view, transactions that involve innovative companies, including early stage assets, which are not even being exploited commercially, could be reviewed under this Article 22 policy. So it's important that dealmakers factor this into conditionality and risk allocation. We've also seen earlier in July, the UK government intervene in an IP licensing deal, which it blocked using its new powers under the National Security and Investment Act. It is critically important that deal documents cover all those filing obligations at the different times that they arise and that parties think carefully about risk allocation and the way the competitive landscape might look at those different timing points. So especially when thinking about investments in biotech and medtech, investors really need to plan for those review periods, including understanding when they arise and making sure that they've got appropriate measures in place, given the geopolitical climate. Jenny, you do make an important point that it's not just European jurisdictions or, say, the U.S., that we need to worry about closer to home in Asia, jurisdictions where both merger control and FDI reviews, where we've seen an uptick in the level of scrutiny, include jurisdictions like China. A new anti-monopoly law codifies the authority's ability to call in a transaction that even falls below the filing thresholds. That's just one example. Other jurisdictions that have strengthened their various tools include India, Japan, and of course, there's also Australia, which has historically been fairly tough in reviewing transactions. Absolutely, Nanette. And I think it's important to bear in mind that even when there are no filings, there is still risk and complexity to manage from an antitrust perspective. And in fact, I would say sometimes those transactions can be more complex as you need to assess the agreement throughout its entire life cycle and you don't have the benefit of an upfront clearance decision that blesses you for your entire collaboration. I think whichever way around you look at it, it's important to get antitrust counsel to review these agreements from a global perspective, including sort of key commercial provisions. So things like exclusivity clauses and non-competes, especially in global life sciences deals, you have to make sure that they work within different antitrust regimes and the different rules that are set and parameters that are required. The same is true for things like governance committees and information rights, which are obviously very important, especially in collaboration agreements. Um, But they do need to stay within the guardrails provided by various competition regimes around the world. And perhaps I can pick up on a point that Vanita, I think, touched on a little bit earlier. But I think another risk we do see is the sort of challenging commercialization environment. So whether that's market competition, government pricing regimes, and that sort of risk also needs to feed into to deal considerations. So, Denovanita, do you want to pick up on that, perhaps? Yeah, sure, Jenny. Thank you. You know, I, I think that's exactly right. There's there's so much to react to in your thoughtful comments there. I'll unpack a few of the points. You know, one is certainly in Asia, we're seeing an implementation of a number of different price control policies, you know, particularly China, Vietnam, although there are others underway as well. I think that's also a significant global trend as folks are looking at 
life sciences and healthcare and thinking about which elements may not be as consumer patient caregiver friendly as um as folks uh, especially the regulators and elected officials might want them to be but picking up on your earlier point around these complex deal structures that don't have you know the benefit of the kind of stamp of the early clearance and you kind of go on your way and a smooth sailing because so much of what we're seeing both in the med tech space as well as in life sciences more broadly are these very long term perhaps you know a decade or more you know early stage deals that really have you know, a life of their own, you know, each of the parties may undergo certain changes in their structure, they may be acquired, they may acquire other assets, um, other companies, um, which could really change how you have to think about the protection of data, the firewalling, the sharing of information. And then when you have this interesting interplay of some personal data with the general goal to have interoperability, which I'm guessing is something else that is going to be teed up in further antitrust discussions during this or, or future conversations. There's just so much complexity. I really find that transactional attorneys and our antitrust colleagues are really working hand in hand as, as these collaborations evolve. And you might have collaborations that set up a JV, which then you know, raises a whole host of other complex issues. And so this is something where I really enjoyed certainly collaborating with you as well as broader Freshfields Global team. It's such an exciting, complex space. Vanita, you make some very important comments there. In our discussion so far, we focus very much, though, on the merger control dimension, FDI, price controls, and you touched on data. By all from your perspective as a regulatory healthcare lawyer as well, what are the sort of sector-specific regulatory challenges you think clients should be aware of when structuring and negotiating uh, life sciences transactions across the full gamut of structures that we've been discussing? Thanks, Nanette. I have to say the regulatory challenges will not make our lives easier adding to the complexity of the transaction, the merger falling risks and challenges Jenny and Vanita just touched on. So as all we've seen, life sciences may be one of the most heavily regulated industries, if not the most one. It covers a variety of products and business, including pharmaceutical products, medical devices, cosmetics, functional food, etc. Each type of product and business is subject to different sector regulator regimes that vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. With new technology and new products emerging in the market, it brings more challenges to the sector players. I'll give you an hypothetical example. So we say we have a wearable device that can monitor blood glucose and upload the data to a mobile app. And then the app will provide guidance to users taking diabetes medications. In this hypothetical example, 
Such device may be regulated as medical device in some countries, but not in the others. Similarly, the mobile app may be regulated as a medical device, and even the advice or guidance given through the app to the users may be regulated as medical practice that can only be provided by healthcare professionals in some jurisdictions. So this is just only one example to see in a transaction. For a particular product, it may involve multiple regulators and involve regulations in multiple countries. So the investors have to face a more and more complex regulatory environment, and the regulatory issues become more challenging. It's really important for the investors to have a knowledge of the sector. Either itself or through their advisors to have a better understanding of the sector and to keep up with the most updated regulation in the relevant jurisdictions. Like Jenny mentioned, there's no deal is a local deal. Now every deal is a global deal. So it's really important to have an update and overview of the regulatory regime. Involved in the transaction and、uh, product specific and the、uh, business specific. Maya,、uh, maybe just to to pick up on that, one area where there's been a significant increase in regulation over the last few years, including in Asia, is regulation around protection of of data, and we're seeing this more and more impact transactions and the way we structure transactions. And and something that as deal makers we really need to to keep in mind. For example, this comes up frequently in licensing and collaboration deals, where a licensor, besides licensing the underlying intellectual property associated with the product, may be transferring clinical data and other types of information to the licensee. Similarly, an M and A transaction structured as an asset deal. Could involves those sorts of transfers, so just another area where increased regulation, generally and certainly in Asia, is impacting the way we approach transactions and the way we we execute transactions. Another example that we deal with in licensing and collaboration deals are rules around allocation of ownership of new IP. Many countries are. Protective of new IP that's generated by local companies, and in the course of a transaction, may be transferred or allocated to a partner. And in many cases, simply the rules of the general rules that parties can contract, however they like, to allocate ownership and grant licenses may may not apply. And so that's another area where. We're finding those sorts of regulations impacting how we structure deals, generally and and including in Asia. Vinita, maybe you could shed more light on how technology innovation has changed the landscape of the sector. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. No, I I really like the way you you framed this trend in thinking about IP and data separately, and what we're really seeing. Is just this explosion of novel technologies that bring together technology, IP, and data in very complex ways. 
that break down a lot of our traditional buckets of how we treat some of these items. So when you have this convergence of life sciences and healthcare, you have this overlay of patient rights, of, of other kind of access-related and use-related rights that are separate from ownership, and you mix them all together in something like AI machine learning collaborations where each of the parties may have certain background technology, certain access to certain data and related insights. They work together and then they need to come apart at the end of a complex collaboration. How can you cause an algorithm to unlearn what it's been trained on? You know, what are the rights of people to pull out their data to not have insights gleaned from what in many cases can be very personal information how does that how does that actually work in practice but you know it, it's not only challenges that are presented by these integration of technologies i think there's also incredible promise right we've seen 3d printing revolutionize uh, a number of different aspects of healthcare both during the pandemic when you know parts were being made on demand in geographies where they otherwise wouldn't be we're seeing blockchain being applied in some really wonderful ways to to increase patient control and access to their data to make things more fluid as patients try to move for example between healthcare providers uh, Thailand has been actually developing a nationwide blockchain based centralized system in exactly this space but of course you know as as you previewed when you have these increasingly complex integrated data systems, particularly those that cross borders, there's increased scrutiny into the associated data privacy, you know, data transfer related considerations. And there is an actual cost to compliance, particularly because a lot of these regulations are fluid. I mean, it's hard to keep track of, you know, how many relevant regulations there are. It seems like a new one comes into play basically every day, if not every week. You know, one that's certainly been on the mind of a lot of folks both in Asia and beyond has been uh, China's personal information protection law that came into effect late last year. Maya, I would love to actually hear your thoughts on, on how that's been playing out thus far. Yeah, Vanita, I think um, the China personal information protection law is definitely not something that can be ignored in this sector. The law came into effect last year. It specifically requires companies to store personal data on servers physically located in China. Of course, there are additional you know, definitions on what can be personal data for the purpose of that law. And to note that a violation of this law may, in serious circumstances, lead to revocation of the company's license to do business in China. And also, personal liabilities may be imposed on the company executives. So quite a number of companies are doing business in China, uh, not just in this sector, but also the other sectors, is has adopted a specific personal information transfer collection a storage regime or policies before they start to do their business in China. Also, this personal data protection 
mechanism is also a key area in legal due diligence in the relevant targets in China markets. Maybe just to pivot for a moment, in addition to some of the regulation around protection of data that we've been discussing, what we see a lot in the transactions we work on are restrictions on transfers of biological materials or samples of patient from patients across border. This has become increasingly complex and creates challenges for structuring deals, particularly given some of the new cell and gene therapies that have been developed and proved over the last few years. For example, cell therapies like a CAR-T therapy involve complex multi-step manufacturing processes where T-cells are extracted from the patient for processing at a manufacturing facility and then returned for reinfusion to the patient on specific timelines which are approved as part of the regulatory approval process. Thinking about Asia in particular, the, the sheer geographic distances involving moving materials around can create issues and companies need to develop rigorous systems to adhere to those timelines, which can be a challenge. That's why we've seen over the last few years, developers of these sorts of therapies look to partner with local companies in the Asia markets in order to introduce these therapies in those countries. Examples include Kite partnering with China's Fosun and, and Japan's Daiichi Sankyo for, the, for Kite's Yescarta therapy and a, a CAR-T therapy, and similarly, Novartis partnering with Cellular Biomedicine Group for the introduction of Kim Raya into the Asian market before Novartis established its own facility in 2020. So these new and exciting therapies and treatments create all sorts of opportunities, but from a, a regulatory perspective and from the perspective of structuring deals, um, they, they certainly add a lot of complexity that needs to be thought about. Adam, I cannot agree you more on that point. So this challenge is particularly real in China. As you mentioned, a lot of pharma companies working with local partners in those uh, projects. So those kind of partnership is not just for the purpose of efficiency in these projects, but as well as the requirement of the local law. In China, the new biological safety law and the new regulations on administration of human genetic resources uh, were adopted recently, specifically require that international collaborations with respect to human genetic resources has to be a partnership with a Chinese company or institution. This is more a regulatory requirement on that perspective. And also not just cross-border transfer, but also collecting, storing, and use of human genetic resources, which by definition will include blood samples, need to comply with those rules. We have seen in the past few years some biotech companies and also a couple of pharmaceutical multinational companies penalized for not properly handling patients' blood samples in clinical trials in China. And also the collaboration projects, including clinical trials in China, which involve collecting blood samples, which are human genetic resources materials, is subject to filings with the regulatory authority. So as I mentioned, this 
add another layer of complexity in doing business and transactions in this sector. And we really need to look into those areas in assessing the risks and challenges of uh, the entire transaction. Maya, what you describe is what I would call a complex interplay between antitrust data, understanding manufacturing techniques, understanding how one can manufacture, administer cell and gene therapies, manufacturing processes, the unique dimensions of biotech and medtech. I would like to bring all these different points together. Whilst complex, I think what our listeners would love to hear from each of you are some of the practical tips you would offer on managing different risks, different challenges, managing the fact that our various clients and companies will have varying risk appetites. How do you address all these dimensions in cross-border transactions? Jenny, perhaps I'll start with you. Well, maybe I can leave our listeners with two top tips from my perspective. I think the first one is for any cross-border transaction, irrespective of your deal structure, whether it's an M&A deal, whether it's licensing, whether it's partnering, it's important to understand merger control and foreign investment requirements, not only at the time of signing, but throughout your entire agreement. And this is absolutely critical because this doesn't just go to deal timetable. It also goes to your ability to extract and execute commercial steps in the way that they are envisaged at the outset and making sure that you can crystallize value later on in the way that is intended. So it's absolutely important to think about those later steps from the get-go. I think the second point I would just remind our listeners of is that, especially when, when thinking about partnerships and collaborations, these agreements have to be structured in a way that is robust and satisfies antitrust requirements throughout the lifespan. So you have to plan both for success and potential failure and anticipate the fact that at some point, as Vanita said, right, these can go on for 10 years. At some point, you may become competitors if you're not already competitors. And so there should be sufficient mechanics in your agreement that allow you to uh, react and, and adjust based on changes in the competitive landscape. Picking up on that, Jenny, when I think about practical suggestions that we can offer uh, listeners uh, around thinking about how to structure deals and how to approach their deal making, I think the one central point I would make is to start thinking about the issues that we've been discussing early on in the transaction at the deal structuring phase. Often when you, you know, when you think about some of the issues, regulatory issues and the like that we've talked about, whether it's regulation of data and the transfer of data, restrictions on transfer of patient materials, restrictions or requirements around allocating IP in a transaction. These are all things which, if left to late in the transaction process when you're in the throes of negotiating an agreement, can really trip people up and slow the process down because they can often involve restructuring of a transaction. So I would, I would certainly think about those early. Similarly, when it comes to investments, I think Asian investors investing in the U.S. or otherwise really need to be thinking about the FDI, foreign direct investment regulations we've been talking about in the various countries. Certainly here in the U.S., CFIUS can require filings even for 
relatively small minority investments by ex-U.S. countries. And that can really become difficult, especially where the investment involves a numerous investors and there may just be one investor who is dealing with this sort of restriction. It's important to assess that early and figure out a deal structure early on that can accommodate that without requiring that investor to drop out of the financing. Yeah, I would like to echo Adam on the points that to identify the sector regulatory obstacles and other issues or risks in an earlier stage. It is also important to keep updated and keep close watch on the trend of the regulatory change in important markets. Like, for example, in China, given its importance in the current biotech world and its regulation or regulatory change has made an really important impact on how the deals can be structured and how the business will work in the future. Not just for China, but the impact will be extended to the region and even globally. I agree with everything that's been said thus far. I I think I'd like to end on a very optimistic note too, right? We've talked a lot about the complexities associated with, you know, deployment of some of these technology ecosystems, the the data, antitrust, interplay, and so on. But I think there are also such amazing insights that you can gain through effective use of data and some of these fantastic innovations. So for example, both during the pandemic and thereafter, we've seen some really effective uses of things like digital twin technology to model out complex manufacturing and and supply chains. And so you can achieve efficiency and and be very nimble, um, even if there are a number of different factors, regulatory, as Maya suggested, and otherwise that are in play. And so I, I certainly encourage people to, as they're looking at some of these new innovations, think about how there could be additional technology or use of data to help them be more effective and efficient. Again, just echo the theme of thinking about these issues early and often and just embracing the opportunities that a lot of these changes are presenting. If I can try to sum up what I've heard, I think particularly from you, Vanita, is yes, there's a complexity, but actually we are living in an environment where a lot of the complexities actually drive innovation drives efficiency and also drives us towards efficient use of the new technologies that are coming to market. Vanita, Adam, Maya and Jenny, thank you for your overview on managing transactional risks in life sciences deals, both in and outside Asia. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for listening into this episode in our Managing Risk in Asia series. If you'd like more information about the topics in this podcast, please don't hesitate to email us. We hope you'll join us again next time.